I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. You're listening to Alone, a love story. And I'm Michelle Parisi. Chapter 2. Why not? Hurricane. In the year 2000, after I'd broken up with the musician and moved out on my own, I figured that my relationship with the scientist was no big deal. I was pretty sure that the sex was all we had between us, that we'd grow tired of each other eventually and move on to find people who we actually had something in common with. I missed the kind of conversations I'd have with the musician. Long, intelligent talks about films and novels, philosophy, music. The scientist never knew what I was talking about. If I played a song by the Beatles, he couldn't tell who was singing. My vocabulary was too big for him, and I was constantly dumbing myself down. Sometimes I thought wistfully of the musician and the easy symmetry of our life before the scientist upset the balance. But I was electrically charged. I was hooked on this man who burned incandescent. It felt different to love like this. It felt like a hurricane. Other than great sex, all we mostly did was fight in those early days. We'd fight and fight and fight. Once, I threw a bowl of cherries at the wall and it smashed into pieces, a fireworks display of red and white. Another time, I put all his stuff in a bag and threw it off the rooftop of my apartment into the alleyway. He didn't seem to care and didn't call me for days, which made me crazy. I imagined him doing horrible things I didn't want to imagine him doing with cute university girls, but apparently he was just playing video games and waiting for me to cool down. We could not understand each other, ever. It was all one giant miscommunication. We would fight and fuck and fight and fuck. So yeah, there was a lot of passion and drama in that first year together. But there was also a lot of growth. I became a much less judgmental person because of him. I stopped writing people off because of things like political affiliation or the fact that they didn't read books. He asked me to teach him about music, so one night we listened to Led Zeppelin and I taught him to count time signatures out by slapping his thighs with his hands. I also attempted to teach him to distinguish between Beatles. It didn't work. He still can't tell who's singing. I introduced him to foreign films, and he took me to blockbuster action movies. We learned to love the things the other person loved. Or at least, we tried.
To get to my 300-square-foot apartment, you had to take a fire escape in the alleyway of Honest Ed's, an old department store famous for its quirky signs and the way you'd get lost in its maze of cheap stuff. Light bulbs hung in strings in the alleyway, and young cooks and dishwashers of neighboring restaurants were out by open doorways, having smokes at all hours of the night. The rats as big as cats in the dumpster. You could hear them fighting as you fell asleep. I painted the entire apartment mustard. I can't imagine why now, but I did, and the scientist helped me. We did the bathroom bright purple. I was 25 and living alone for the first time ever. Sort of. Once I was in and settled, the scientist settled in too, mostly. He was writing his master's thesis, and that was hard to do while living with roommates. So during the day while I was at work, he'd be at my place, writing his thesis on his old laptop at my vintage Formica table. He slept at my new place most nights, but not always. I hated when he wasn't there. It made me anxious, panicked, possessive. His thesis work was in atomic physics, and some days I'd get home from work and the entire floor of my little apartment would be covered in paper, all with the mad scratchings of a mathematician. It looked like that scene in the movie A Beautiful Mind, just equations everywhere, and then his shiny, dark eyes, his tense jaw. It makes me love him just to think of it now. Each day was the same. I'd come home from a full day's work. He'd be sitting at the table, head deep into the workings of the cesium atom. I'd walk in, say hello, and without a word, he'd come to me and kiss me, removing my purse with one hand, shutting the door with the other, and we'd have sex immediately, right there or wherever. The apartment was only 300 square feet. And then we might eat some dinner, or he'd go right back to writing, and I'd play guitar and sing, but quietly, so I wouldn't bother him. We were in a tiny, mustard-colored cocoon at the turn of the century, and everything felt full of promise. Every moment felt electric, even the ordinary ones. Eventually, I began to edit his thesis for him, for grammar only, obviously. I knew absolutely nothing about physics, let alone this very specific thing he had done to an atom, or the giant machine he built to do it. Sometimes, it would take me an hour to edit two pages. Not because of the physics, but because he had no idea how to write a sentence. He had no idea how to write at all his brain full of math and machines and experiments, not syntax. About a month into the editing, he comes up to me there at the table, hunched over his thesis, and he says to me with all sincerity, so are you starting to get some of this? I laugh and tell him, no, I am in no way starting to get any of it. He asks how I can edit something I don't understand. So I try to explain that it's just grammar. It's just sentence structure the content is irrelevant. He finds this fascinating. I find him fascinating. We're in awe of each other, since we're from totally different planets, since the other person seems capable of powers we can't possess. 
We're total opposites. We are madly in love. And then for reasons I'll never understand, because we never talked about it, he asks me to marry him. On September 13, 2001. Yeah, that's right. Two days after 9-11. He phoned to say I should meet him at our favorite Italian restaurant for dinner. Like every journalist in the world following the attacks, I'd just worked about 30 hours straight. I hadn't been home at all. I was tired and wanted to get out of the newsroom to forget for a little bit the terrible things we'd all watched over and over again. I don't know what he was thinking at all, especially at a time like that. But there he was, asking me to marry him. He had a ring even, a big diamond ring, just sparkling at me, and I laughed and laughed and laughed. I seriously didn't know what the fuck was going on. I didn't even ever want to get married to anyone, let alone this complicated, adorable man I had nothing in common with. But I loved him. He made my life an incredibly charged and technicolor thing. Everything about him made me feel alive. So I reasoned that having things in common didn't matter. I loved him so much. The thought of not loving him pained me. But I was also slightly conflicted. Did I really want something as important as marriage to begin right when a huge tragedy just happened? I worried it was a bad sign. This proposal in the aftermath of terrorism so close to home, while airspace was still closed, while loved ones were still missing, while images of people jumping out of falling buildings still played on a loop in my mind. I'm looking at this ring, and after a while he says, So? And I say, why not? Because really, why not? I say, I love you, and you love me. Let's take a chance. And so we did. Ten years later. I'm reading in bed. Downstairs, I hear the now familiar sounds. The pop of a beer cap. The hum of the television. The punctuated laughter that now seems forced. As if he's trying desperately to find joy in something. Earlier, I stood in the doorway of the TV room. Lingering. Unnoticed. Why don't you come up to bed with me? He doesn't. He never does anymore. We just celebrated our ninth wedding anniversary. By celebrate, I mean we had strained conversation over dinner. He said he was tired about 50 times. I tried to make him laugh, but his face has turned into a hard piece of stone. His eyes are expressionless. Our marriage is stuck. It's just there and festering. He's motionless, unresponsive. I don't know what's happened to him, and it's making me bitter. 
angry. I feel trapped and resigned. Of course, what's happened to him is her. I just don't know it yet. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Compromise. We're engaged for a year, and during that year, we learn that planning a wedding is the least romantic thing you can do. We spend that year rolling our eyes at each other with utter exasperation, or giving each other long, resigned looks. Despite how independent and kooky we both are, we also want to please everyone and do what we think we should do. And so we give in to every expectation and trope and end up planning the most traditional of weddings. 160 guests, open bar, seven course meal, hire a DJ named Pino, a photographer named Greg, We get no less than 50 phone calls a week from either my mother or his mother, each one more maddening than the next. So-and-so can't sit beside Aunt whoever. Make sure you invite this distant cousin who you've never met, plus his entire family. What kind of ribbon are you going to get for the centerpieces? Eighth of an inch or tenth of an inch? I have never cared less about anything in my entire life. Ribbon sizes and flowers, seating arrangements and shoes dyed to match my dress. Honestly, I hate it all. He hates it too. But like the world's best almost husband, he does every little boring task with me. At one point, he declares that making the seating arrangement for our reception is the single most difficult puzzle he's ever done. Which is saying a lot for a physicist. He's there with me to choose the flowers the reception hall, even the who on earth cares ribbon for the honest to God who cares centerpieces. We are compromising, both of us, to make this wedding a thing that a wedding is supposed to be. The biggest compromise is this. He wants us to get married in a church. I do not want to get married in a church. I was raised Catholic, but I'm not exactly religious. 
I go to church for baptisms and confirmations and special days that are important to my father. I'm respectful of people's faith, but truthfully, I'm not too sure I believe in God. Sometimes I wish I did believe more, but I just don't. So getting married in a church seems wrong to me. Starting our marriage by telling lies in front of all our friends and family, in front of a God that may or may not exist, it is very important to the scientist. Surprisingly important. He really wants us to get married in a church. He just thinks it's right. He says it'll make everyone happy, especially our parents. He asks me to consider the United Church. He thinks it'll be less churchy for me. And so for him, I say, fine. I say fine to make my almost husband happy, to make his parents happy, and to spare my own parents the embarrassment of their artsy feminist daughter getting married in a forest or on a hilltop or worse, in a restaurant. So I say fine. Fine, I will get married in a church. And we do. On the Saturday of the Thanksgiving weekend, in 2002. I wear a vintage 1960s wedding dress and hold a bouquet of bright red and orange flowers. He wears a tux with a tartan vest and everyone we know and love is all in one room, smiling and laughing and getting teary-eyed. And there, in front of everyone, I forget my vow. I just totally, completely forget it. There I am standing, the bride on her special day. And for the life of me, there are no words. I can't remember a single thing about the beautiful vow I'd written. So on the spot, I conjure every TV and movie wedding I've ever seen, and I make up a vow based on that. Sickness and health, good times and bad, all of the days of our lives, blah, blah, blah. When I finish, he smirks, leans in, and whispers, That isn't your vow, Parisi. I throw my head back and howl with laughter. A fiddler plays as we walk down the aisle, and everyone has a smile on their face, my hand in his. After photos, we take our brand new little black car and drive ourselves to the reception at the very north end of the city. The windows are down on this warm October day as we drive up the winding highway to get there. The wind picks up my long veil and takes it right out the window so that it's flapping along the side of the car still attached to my head. People in other cars honk and honk at us. They wave and hoot out of their roll-down windows. We laugh and wave back, this wonderful tradition between strangers. He has his hand on mine and he gives it a squeeze. How about that, Parisi? You just got married. I'm so happy in this moment. So happy to have done this thing I didn't want to do and in a place I didn't want to do it in. And here he is, squeezing my hand with one hand and driving with the other. Here he is, my husband. The husband. My teammate, my partner, my best friend. In sickness and health, good times and bad, all the days of our lives. Blah, blah, blah.
This is why, nine years later, when I find out about the affair, I focus unreasonably on our little car. The same car from our happy wedding scene. I wonder about the things I can never know for sure. Did he drive it to her place? How many times did she sit in the passenger seat where I once sat with my wedding veil hanging out the window? Did she even notice Birdie's baby seat in the back? All the little baby toys and books, the smushed up Cheerios on the seat. And if she did notice those things, didn't that matter? Well, I know. It's just a car. It's just metal. But it was ours, together. And so it's more than just metal. More than the way we got to our wedding reception or to summer campsites. More than the thing that we used for cross-country road trips or for bringing our newborn baby home from the hospital. Yeah, it's just a car. But it's all the life that was lived in that car, too. And that, strangely, hurts almost as much as thinking about his wedding band all over her skin. You're listening to Alone, a love story. It's a CBC original podcast written by me, Michelle Parisi. The story editor is Veronica Simmons. Alone is mixed and produced by me and Veronica in our hometown of Toronto. Our theme music is by Yehenda. Explore more at cbc.ca slash alone. It's my digital scrapbook with art, videos, music, and the story behind the story I'm telling. Stick with me. I want to tell you about the feelings I don't feel. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.